The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Have you ever wanted to learn more about working as a planner or built form professional overseas? Well, today's guest has this experience in spades, having worked across Australia, Canada, UK and Southeast Asia in planning and urban development strategy. Kate Hardwick is an urban development professional with over 20 years experience in land use infrastructure strategy, precinct planning and activation, infrastructure procurement and stakeholder engagement. She's led multiple multidiscipline project teams delivering city-shaping precinct redevelopment projects, strategies and long-term master plans in complex urban environments with often conflicting stakeholder requirements. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks for having me. Now, Kate, great introduction, Jess. How did uh, Kate, how did you become interested in planning all those years ago? It's so funny. When I was at uh, high school, I certainly didn't know what planning was, but uh, politics and geography were my two strongest subjects. And obviously, if you've got a, uh, an interest in either of those things, sort of planning tends to come up at any of the career conference, uh, career expos. Uh, so I just kind of fell into it because of a love of those two things. And can you just give a brief overview of your um, career background to date, which is yeah. very, very interesting? <laughs> Thanks. Um, I started out doing sort of development approvals uh, in local government in Victoria, um, and I worked, did some work in private consultancy. Um, I'd sort of had done that for a couple of years and started to get a bit sort of, you know, was not quite sure if it really fit me and took a bit of a sole vacation to go and teach English in Japan for a year. And then headed over to Canada and did some work uh, over there, which also included running restaurants and skiing a lot. Um, and then when I came home, I left local government um, and went into the department and I was doing some precinct work. Um, it was a really fortuitous time. There was money flowing into urban renewal projects um, and got to lead some really exciting projects. Um, but it really started to make me think about, you know, we had all of these aspirations, but how can you really make money stay in these places? How can you get investment to stay? Um, and that led me to doing a master's in property. Um, having done that, that all that meant that I could then transfer over into major transport projects. And so I had worked on um, East West Link, which is a major road was a major road project in Victoria, um, Metro Tunnel, which is a significant urban rail project, and a lot of the grade separations uh, through Victoria, which was. May, um, trying to detangle kind of road crossings and rail crossings. And my role in all of those sorts of projects was really how could we get the urban uplift around that investment? Um, uh, that led me then um, to working for Metro Tunnel where I was the precincts and integrations lead there. And that was really exciting because we were really sort of taking these precinct plans and then translating them into contract terms um, and working through the procurement process um, and then my husband uh, was lucky enough to secure a job in Singapore and we moved over there. Um, and the first role I got was working with the World Bank 
um, got to do some really cool stuff uh, in Singapore in terms of its role as an infrastructure hub, but then also some work in Yangon um, and other cities in Southeast Asia looking, it was really much uh, about sort of transit oriented development and land value capture. Um, after I did that, I started working at Arab in Singapore and was working in the advisory team, which meant that we sort of had a whole of Southeast Asia um, exposure, but taking really sort of, I guess, those that planning discipline and really sort of um, ramping it up in terms of urban strategy and advisory. Um, we were there for about three years and then COVID hit and we came home to be with our family um, and I was able to get a job with uh, in tourism. Um, the At the time, sort of $300 million had been granted to a tourism area within government, within Department of then Jobs, Jobs Regions, I remember now, DJPR, Jobs Precincts and Regions, um, and have for the last sort of 15 months been uh, standing up some delivery capability within government to be able to deliver these projects. And I think we've got about 150, proje 100, yeah, 150 projects across both public and private funded um, for regional tourism projects, which is sort of, you know, all the cool stuff you can think of, thermal bathing and wineries and distilleries and um, hotel accommodation and a whole bunch of cool stuff like that. Well, well, Kate, I'm going to ask you about the critical junctions in your <clears throat> career. But first, you mentioned teaching English in Japan for a year. I'm heading over in three weeks. I love Japan. How was how challenging was teaching English in Japan? And then I'll jump back into the junction question. Yeah, no, um, teaching English in Japan was actually, um, because I was working for a private firm, um, the people who came to the classes were very motivated and they were people who were really looking to travel. Um, most teachers sort of do it as a gap year, but my husband and I, now husband, um, were a bit older. And so I was giving one-on-one um, -on -one classes to sort of, you know, CEOs and very senior people and, you know, court judges and things like that. Um, and it was actually a delight. Japanese people are wonderful. Um, and it was really, um, I think it, I was in a very sort of privileged position because, you know, sitting in these one-on-one -on -one classrooms, teaching English and teaching English conversation, um, there was a real sort of rapport that established with a whole sort of range of people across Japanese society. Um, and they were very open. Um, I think that's probably one of the most lovely things. They're not sort of, um, they were very generous with their ideas and perspectives. And so I think I was, as I said, privileged to be able to understand, uh, to be able to be invited into those perspectives. And you would have to blend in a bit to the Japanese culture as well, presumably, Kate. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I am uh, quite a tall white woman, so I don't blend in in any other way. Um, but in terms of, there was a lot of um, learning that I had to do in terms of uh, Japanese culture, as many of you would understand, is very regimented. And so things like, you know, when I would go to talk to a colleague at a desk, I would immediately try and bring myself down to the same height. And so I would sit on the desk to talk to someone and that's the height of rudeness. Um, so there was a whole bunch of ways, the way I carried myself, the way I raised ideas had to be carefully sort of um, tempered or at least changed. Um, 
And then I think one of the things that I've learned from working in Southeast Asia and Asia more broadly is that um, how I um, convey information, um, you know, we tend in Anglo, uh, Anglo storytelling is different to Asian storytelling um, and narrative. And so there's a, you know, a blending of, you know, how you take people on a journey and how you help them to understand what you're trying to teach them. And critical junctions in your career, I mean, you've outlined a few, but was it chance, uh, opportunity, uh, did things just pop up, uh, you know, looking back, was it um, luck or work or both? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think I was, because um, I started my career in sort of 1999, and so pre-GFC, it was, you know, there was a lot of money rushing, washing through the system and that created a lot of opportunity. Um, as I said, I was working, um, so I had a couple of pretty critical junctures. I think that um, going, uh, doing my property masters in, I think I started it in 2006 or 2007, um, and that was a fairly critical juncture for me that sort of took me out of straight development approvals and straight planning and very much more into the um, the proper urban renewal kind of space. Um, and so, and doing that property masters too had meant that I could then, when I was in Southeast Asia, the timing was really right around transit oriented development and looking for sort of novel financial mechanisms to be able to pay for urban investments. Um, so that was uh, sort of a, an evolution of where my thinking was, but also good timing and a, a dose of chance. I think probably the other critical juncture for me was really working for the World Bank and working out of Singapore in particular. Um, and at that, just after the World Bank, I started working with Arab and I was working very closely with their international development area. And what I saw when we were doing, you know, international development projects for like, you know, flood ravaged um, country cities in Indonesia or you know Cambodia or this there was a lot to be learned around um, the economic development tools and techniques that they used and how that could be applied to advanced economies um, what I saw and what we were doing in Southeast Asia I thought that we could modify that um, quite effectively in Victoria and in Australia. I think a lot of the time when we think about our precinct planning, we sort of, you know, we say, oh, I want to need 30,000 jobs and I need 30,000 people. And the assumptions that we make about the jobs is, well, that equates to 12 metres per square, 12, 12 square metres per person for an office job. And that's not really how you create economic stickiness. Um, and so for me, that was something that was a real turning point in terms of my thinking. Just in terms of giving our, um, our listeners some background on Singapore, can you just provide an outline of the post-war history of development there? Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. So, you know, the first thing when you get to Singapore, they talk a lot about, um, you know, raffles and that sort of, you know, the colonial um, uh, influence in Singapore, which sort of happened from, I think, 1812 or thereabouts. But it wasn't really until the mid 20th century that things started to change um, under Lee Kuan Yew. Um, and that's really when they took, you know, Singaporeans that were still very much in sort of a village kind of um, urban settlement and then started to build, you know, 
the Housing and Development Board, which sort of took people out of the villages and put them into high-rise flats and sort of reframed the idea of community to be much more three-dimensional. Um, I think also at that time there was a, you know, because um, Lee Kuan Yew was so singly focused, it was a really, um, it was a very pragmatic um, plan in terms of what they needed to do. And I think that there's a city plan that came out of 1961. And what Lee Kuan Yew realised is that they didn't have the skills locally. And so they brought in United Nations experts to help them with that. And I think that's really helped Singapore create a very, um, <laughs> as I said, pragmatic path to development. Um, one of the things that's really um, one of the things that I noticed very strongly is that the social contract is all is really understood in Singapore. You know, we will, you know, we have, um, you know, had the same party in power for ever and a day, but as a result of that, we get growth and prosperity, and you know, we get the what we need to sustain as a city. I think one of the things that, um, you know, Singapore for listeners in Victoria. <laughs> Singapore is um, one third the size of metropolitan Melbourne, um, but has a similar kind of gross state product. Um, so they have a very, very, very small kind of footprint, no natural resources. Um, and they realized fairly quickly that um, human capital was one of their primary things. Um, and one of the first things they did in the in the early 60s was, and one of some of their first investments from the World Bank um, was about setting up the universities and getting um, uh, and getting education high on the agenda to then upskill their own internal workforce to then become, you know, the financial powerhouse that it is globally. Well, well, Kate, um, I mean, Singapore was created in the early 60s when it broke away from Malaysia and mm. um, it was dirt poor. It, um, everyone thought they were going to, you know, completely fail. But one of the first things that they had, Jess, in the early plans was the greening of Singapore. And Kate, I know we're sort of I'm going off on a tangent, but you mentioned the Housing Development Board. Mm. I think that houses like, I don't know, 80%, 90, 80%, yep. 80% of um, people in Singapore in, in a range of housing accommodation, but You've got lots of different cultures there and they've managed to create a sense of unity and the housing board has copied that sort of kampong uh, living community living spaces. Yeah, they also have, um, so in terms of the population, I'll get the percentages wrong. So, you know, say 50% are Chinese, 40% Malay and then the rest Indian. They rep, whatever the, the numbers are, they replicate that in every single housing estate so that there can be no kind of, um, so, so it's, uh, this, it's uniform across all of the different housing estates. I think also too, as early in the 60s, um, they, under, they had a policy of one tree per person. And again, this comes back to that. They're very, you know, their policies are easy to sell and easy to understand, one tree per person. And that has meant that, you know, they, I think they call themselves, I don't think they call themselves a city, uh, a city in a garden anymore but it's very much the whole you know this enormous kind of urban development has come at the same time with you know a level of greenery uh, as you said Peter um, that that's sort of you know fundamental to not just the character of the place but also you know it's sort of urban heat island challenges that they're now facing. 
I haven't personally been to Singapore. It's definitely high on my on my travel list. But from what everyone always tells me, you know, they they always mention the greenery and the and the physical environment, obviously, but also just the fact that it's such a clean and beautiful mm. place to visit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's certainly um, you did. And some of my, when I was living there, some of my expat friends told me that, you know, when you go home, you'll be shocked. <laughs> and it's true, even though the area that, you know, where I live is also very clean and well-maintained, but it doesn't compare to the absolute precision <laughs> of the Singaporean uh, the Singaporean um, urban environment. Um, I think what is, you know, got to be understood about Singapore is because it's so small and compact um, it really it has a really properly integrated idea about what its direction is so you know a level of you know its economic narrative is tied to its urban development narrative is tied to its you know um, social well-being narrative um, and that all comes together really consistently I think one of the benefits of Singapore and because it's small is that in other areas where there is a sort of a, a vast, a, a bigger kind of urban area, there are natural points of conflict in very in policy. Whereas because Singapore is so small and the government is so flat, all of those conflicts tend to get sort of sit with one or two people and they sort of manage those very effectively. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. Well, Kate, Kate, you know, Jess, I was actually christened in Singapore in the early, um, well, not early 60s, but a bit after that. But uh, I've probably been there 15 times, Kate. I I Mm. adore the place. I I think it's incredibly interesting. Some people think it's boring, but um, one of the things is the sort of the necessary community spirit to make the mm. place work. I mean, Jess, Singapore's gone from being dirt poor to having a standard of living equivalent to Australia. Um, and it's sort of the Switzerland of the, of Southeast Asia. Kate, I mean, it Most really definitely. is a, a safe, uh, no corruption. It's a mm-hmm. uh, very clean place. But what lessons, I mean, it's a it's an open question, mm. Kate, but what lessons can Singapore give to other cities, uh, third world third world cities, but also first world cities. Yeah. I think it's hard to, because, you know, Singapore is, um, it's small, it has a flat government, 90% of the land is owned by government. So that affords them a level of control that you can't necessarily duplicate elsewhere. But I think one of the things that I find um, is really um, the importance of narrative and of trust. Um, I think that, um, you know, when they were trying to, inc- they didn't force people out of villages into high-rise flats. They sold them on the idea of how things would be better. And there were enticements and inducements and there was a whole bunch, there was a whole kind of um, uh, marketing campaign about, you know, villages in the sky and it was very much around. And so they had a willing community that, Um, was, you know, it was quite a struck transition. As you say, they were dirt poor, like Orchard Road. My dad went to school there in the early 60s and it used to be a big sort of open drain with shop houses. (laughs) Now it's home to some of the most expensive real estate in the world. 
Um, but really that sort of um, taking the community on through the idea of narrative, um, you know, it is a culturally rich place and, you know, those cultures can come together but still maintain their distinctness and identity. Um, one of the benefits of living in Singapore is you get to celebrate, you know, Ramadan and uh, Lunar New Year and Christmas and, um, and Diwali. Um, but then also too, I think there's um, the element of trust. Working in Yangon or, or Myanmar and Thailand and um, Vietnam, there is not a lot of trust uh, in the government. And so if the government can't sort of create a healthy taxation base to then sort of, you know, create appropriate systems, it becomes a, you know, you can't even get off um, first base. Uh, so I think the, the two things that I think Singapore has done very, very well that can be duplicated is certainly the idea of a narrative that speaks to different community groups and building trust in public institutions. I'll just jump in there just before you ask a question, but, you know, Kate, one thing, you know, like the Singapore cabinet members get very, you know, reasonably well paid. And their theory is that um, if we pay our cabinet ministers, our politicians well, then they're not going to try and seek bribes. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, it's sort of a very, as you said, very pragmatic way oh. of understanding human nature. Yeah, I definitely, um, and, you know, through COVID, wherever you were in the world, you got to um, see your politicians, you know, in a much more kind of, you know, on our TV every day. Um, I think the health minister, the Singaporean health minister, um, you know, you could see that there was, um, he was, incredibly well informed he was um obviously a very smart man but the messages that he was communicating would have resonated with with anyone regardless of you know what you did for a living or um uh, or, or how you understood um you know politics um so i think that there's um there is a political class that is very very polished and very very capable um and so i think that goes to the trust too that that sort of comes across that they are um, obviously very capable but then you know can speak in a very accessible way. Having worked in all these really um, interesting and very different environments was it a struggle I guess coming back to Australia and looking at the way that we do things or the way that things are I guess in our industry was it frustrating to see that we were still having the issues that we have in our system? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question, Jess. <laughs> Absolutely. I think everyone sort of comes home from a global jaunt and, you know, has, you know, hometown blues. But, um, no, I think probably one of the things that was most stark for me was that um, in anywhere that you work in Southeast Asia or anywhere you work in Asia, they believe that the next generation will be better off than them. And so there's an undercurrent of positivity. And, you know, we one of the projects that we worked on was the new capital city for Indonesia. So for listeners who know, um, in, uh, Jakarta is massively congested and currently sinking because they're pumping their aquifer and they don't have any sort of municipal water supply. So the whole thing so that the plan was to move the administrative capital out of um uh into Balikpapan um 
And, you know, we would talk about some of the technical difficulties around that. Like, you know, we can do that. We can, we can do this. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. Well, legislative change. Yeah, okay, let's do that. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, that may be, you know, the, the giddiness of a, of a major project, but just the, the starting point that things were possible to come home and then to be, you know, fighting for the ability to use, and I'll use it, to, you know, clause 5230, which is a special provision of the planning scheme, you know, whether we qualify or not, I did sort of roll my eyes a couple of times. Oh, God, <laughs> this is difficult, more difficult than it needs to be. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, um, uh, we, 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 I t it's easy to take the good things that we have for granted. So, you know, our um, rule of law, our level of you know connectivity the fairness of our systems the ability for third party um, participation the accessibility of our politicians all that kind of stuff um, it's easy once you have those rights to to dismiss them um, but I, you know, I've, I remind myself constantly that you know it is a there's um you know decades of good work that's come before me that I might be a bit complacent about hmm. great answer Jim. Great answer, Kate. Now, one more question about Singapore. Can you just discuss the urban research agenda um, which uh, Singapore produces? What sort of range it has and how frequently it comes out and, and how useful it is? Yeah, yeah. So it's um, part of – so the Ministry of um, – M, M, was it the Ministry of um, – Development Ministry of Development, Ministry of National Development, NMND, they have a subset called the Centre of Livable Cities, and they have been tasked by government to, among other things, to document the rise um, of Singapore and all of the all of the things that they've learned through this monumental kind of um, rise from, as you say, from sort of, you know, <laughs> dirt poor to highly advanced economy. Um, so they have these series called the Urban Systems Studies. And I used to go to, um, uh, the, they've got a very engaged kind of um, industry in Singapore and they would, um, the, the Centre for Livable Cities would run um, frequent talks and they would every time they had a new book to release um, I would grab a copy of them so the kinds of things that and I've got a patch sitting here so the kinds of things that they cover is you know one of them's called land framework of Singapore building a sound land administration and management system land acquisition and resettlement securing resources for development financing a city developing foundations for sustainable growth working with the markets, harnessing market forces for private sector development, cleaning a nation, cultivating a healthy living environment and food and the city overcoming challenges for food security. And these, um, these publications are um, easy to read. They're beautifully produced. They come with lots of case studies. Um, and I find them to be, I quite often go back to each of these books every time I sort of come up with my own challenge just for a new perspective um, and, and that was just a fraction of the titles that they have in their series um, so it's just an incredible resource I said it was um, unprecedented on the world stage and then the government had the good foresight to say this is going to be a worthwhile task to then um, catalogue everything that we did and all the lessons that we learned um, so it's a, a wonderful gift for urban planning nerds like me. 
Sounds very interesting. I kind of want to have a look at them now. Well, I'll share them with <laughs> Jess, no worries. Please. And so, Kate, how does good research in that sense and collaboration, I guess, move into the policy and implementation process? What can we do? What can we be doing more of in that space? I think, and I'm putting on my sort of um, my uh, having currently working in the the public sector in Victoria. Um, what I find is that um, while we might have good research practices, we don't necessarily have great data. Um, we sort of have a very, um, we have incomplete data. You know, we might get some demographic data from the ABS, we might get some journey to work stuff, but our understanding of community and the values is really quite chunky and lacking in nuance. Um, and look, I don't think that's necessarily a Victorian thing. I think that that's something we're learning how to deal with globally, um, that idea of moving from complicated to complex. Um, so I, I think, um, uh, you know, new data sources that are emerging, you know, sentiment analysis or credit card data or any of that, that new sort of forms of data are really useful. I think a lot of the times we do sort of, one of the challenges that we have um, producing policy at state government at the moment is that, you know, the research that we might gather said is incomplete or we do it as a one-off, um, it would be really good to sort of, you know, if we had access to better data, you know, the kinds of decisions that we could be making could be far more finely calibrated. Um, I think then, you know, if we do have that kind of understanding that would lead to better implementation as I, um, one of the things that I think being a planner from Victoria, um, because we tend to be very um, regulatory in our approach to planning, um, we're very good at statutory drafting. Our skills are very good. And so translating policy, if you have that ability to translate policy into either regulation or contract clauses or anything else, it does mean that you get much better outcomes when you start working with the private sector. Um, so I think that once we sort of, um, uh, once our data becomes more complete and we become more sophisticated in manipulating that data, um, that will lead to even better results for the for urban development. Wow. Um, Kate, you're working on big projects and you've worked on big projects in the past. You know, some people look at big projects and think, how does all this work? Um, can you give our listeners an idea of how things are managed or muddled or, you know, how, how does it all take shape? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question because um, it is it's a mix of, you know, fine precision and careful calibration and just trust <laughs> that it'll all come together in the end. Um, I think it is really um, big infrastructure projects require, um, sorry, big infrastructure projects come with a very, very wide kind of technical support base from, you know, all the, all the disciplines of engineering and, um, you know, all the specialities around, you know, um, whether they be rail or signalling or, um, and then you've got a whole suite of commercial advisors and you've got planning and environment and you've got a whole host of the community and a bunch of other things all built into there. Um, to a, to a, a, a big extent, there is a sort of a momentum that carries big projects that is underpinned by some really good systems and processes. Um, 
and then there's an element on top of that that is just, you know, you've got to trust in your people. Um, projects never, you can plan these out to the nth degree, but there is there is a big difference between having a Gantt chart that sort of talks about, you know, what should be happening and when and the rough terrain of delivery because you can never know everything about place and so things always have to change and flex and move. Um, so there's a, an element to major project delivery that is very much around just have the smartest people you can get in the room and you can overcome some of these problems. And what about achieving a good team dynamic? Again, as you say, with these really big infrastructure projects, you've got a whole vast range of people and consultants involved. They're huge, enormous, big teams. How do you get a, a good good team dynamic working? Yeah, that's um, also a question and it's sort of hard to answer. One of the, um, a colleague put me onto the book, uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And she's one of the um, Silicon Valley kind of gurus who'd worked with um, Sheryl Sandberg. And so she talks about this radical candor, which is, you know, being um, really, really honest and being able to give feedback and, you know, be critical when you need to, but and be supportive as well. But it also invites that back. And so one of the and the first time I saw this in practice, I'd been working with um, McKinsey on a project and um, we'd been in a war room for three months. And the first time I saw it play out, you know, one of the partners out of Singapore was sitting there and they invited their team members to give them some critique about how a meeting went. And one of the grads in the team said, oh, I think you handled this kind of clumsily. I think you could have answered this question. You could have probed them in this way and that sort of left this hanging. And I was just aghast <laughs> at the, the frankness, but also having the chutzpah of like, you know, say something like that. But it was, you know, fair and reasonable. And the partner was, like, yeah, actually, you're right. Thank you for calling that out. That was, and I think that kind of um, humility is really important. You sort of, you know, too much ego. You, you can see it in teams where ego gets in the way. It just is frustrating and annoying. Um, where you can have um, those sorts of um, spaces where people can critique and um, uh, provide, you know, provide feedback in the very best interest of what you're all trying to achieve. Um, and then I think the other part, so there's being um, inviting humility. And then I think the other part of that is really being able to um, speak the language or at least understand how different technical disciplines process information. Um, when I first started out on major projects, I had a really hard time understanding engineers. And it wasn't that, you know, we could all sit in a room and have a conversation, but we'd both get really frustrated um, when giving instruction or giving direction or talking about what we needed to do. And it wasn't until I started to understand how they process information, how they come at problem solving, how they um, break apart issues and challenges, how they formulate their responses, how they frame a problem um, that I really worked out how I could get the best out of them. And so once I did that with the acoustic engineers and the lawyers and the commercial advisors, things started to work a lot better. It, it very, sounds, very wise. It, it, it sounds like Japan all over again, Kate. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, exactly. There's a lot of commonality. Yeah, and, and there's a lot more to these big projects than just the hard infrastructure. Can you talk about the renewal opportunities? I think you talked about uplift before. Yeah, as yeah. Associated with these. Yeah, I think probably the 
the biggest lesson that I've learned is that it's really hard to create value on day one. Like opening up a new rail line doesn't necessarily create value on day one. And so urban renewal is necessarily a longer term process. Um, you know, the transport infrastructure or accessibility is only one idea of value. Um, and so, you know, there is, uh, you know, agglomeration and other kinds of things that people, you know, footfall and traffic and utility and a whole bunch of other things. So, um, and that grows over time. Um, so I think any kind of renewal associated, particularly with a big bit of kit, um, needs to have needs to be planned over the longer term obviously you want to start realizing financial return as quickly as possible um, but you need to have a longer term plan and then also too there is an element and this comes back to the sort of the idea of narrative you need to be building social license so there will be regardless of the context there will be people will value the land in some form or another and so you have to recognize that and build on that. Um, one of, and this is a project that um, I was working on the side of, or actually through the World Bank, um, and it was in South America, and they identified a piece of land for urban renewal and they just like gutted it and built, you know, new, new buildings and all the rest of it. And what they did in that, by not speaking to the local community, not working about how informal networks or intangible networks worked, they decimated it um, and that never really came back. And it took a really long time and lots of inducements to kind of get that informal activity, get the foot traffic, get the get the, um, the commercial activity to come back. So I think that there's an element of um, really making sure that there's a, understanding the different levels of value that the, the existing community apply to that space and then learning how you can amplify that. Really enjoying all this really pragmatic advice that you're giving. This is great. <laughs> so, Kate, I wanted to ask you as well, obviously you've worked across a whole range of different industries and countries. Are there other sectors of the planning world that you would like to have exposure to? Yeah, I kind of hinted at it um, in that first one, the blending of international development and the lessons to be learned for advanced economies, the idea of economic development. And economic development, not just, you know, providing floor area for offices. Um, I think that, um, you know, planning is very good at coming up with a sort of a spatial plan. But what I'm really interested in is then how do we animate that plan in a way that works with current market forces rather than saying, oh, we just need to, anchor, we need to helicopter in a big anchor tenant at great cost to government and then you know, that'll, that'll kickstart it. I think there's something else in there about, you know, how we can sort of motivate the, um, the, the, the natural energies of the market to be able to do that in a bit more of a bottom-up kind of way. Okay, Kate, this question is about the young Kate Hardwick, which, <laughs> you know, which is not that long ago. I mean, you're not old at all, Kate. But, uh, and this question's about, you know, uh, people looking back on their careers, but also we have a lot of uni students listen mm. to the podcast. So it, it's it, the question is, I'm getting to it. What would the young? What would you say to the young Kate Hardwick as she enters the workforce? So on day one, what would you say to your former, well, to yourself when you started work? I would probably say, explore all of the edges 
I think when I was younger, I was very sort of, de- I, I could see myself and where I wanted my career to go. And I was very um, directed towards that. I think probably in, you know, what I've described in terms of my journey, it's when I found something interesting on the edges, that's when my career changed for the, like it led me to something really interesting and exciting. Um, so I'd say, I'd say to myself, spend some time exploring on the edges. Of course, have a direction and where you want to go, but don't necessarily be like sometimes be open to signals um, and other things that might be sort of existing in your periphery. Um, and then the other thing I would probably say to myself is um, I would have spent more time in my early career sort of articulating the skills in the craft of planning in far more detail. I think there was a lot of um, there was a lot of stuff that I just did intuitively. And as a result, I sort of downplayed the skills and capability. Um, when I was working in Canada, I put my CV on a couple of, um, uh, you know, websites looking for work. And I was really surprised at the number of banks from the US who were contacting me and saying, look, I can teach you the business. What I can't teach you is how to work with stakeholders or how to um, manage trade-offs or how to work in complex environments. Um, and I didn't, I wish I'd sort of had an appreciation for those skills early on because then maybe I would have been braver in exploring the edges. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And amongst all of this, Kate, how do you refresh and relax? Um, I get out of the city or I go to a different city. (laughs) Um, I think I, I like to breathe different air. Uh, and so whether that's um, my family has a holiday house that allows me to go, you know, running and surfing and swimming or go to the beach um, or my in-laws live in the mountains and so we can go skiing and, you know, just take in different environments. Um, and also as a city planner, I tend to be very passionate about cities. And so, um, yeah, just breathe different air. Great answer, Kate. Great answer. And we're, we're introducing a new segment, listeners. Um, just know we just talked about it before we went on air today. So please excuse our rough answers. Now, Kate, this is called Crystal Ball, a prediction you've got about anything. It could be cities, it could be economies, it could be anything. Uh, and we just put you on notice um, before we started, Kate. So mm. uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I think that... Um... For me, it will be about, um, you know, AI and machine learning and its its impact on the urban space. Um, I think, you know, already there are lots of, you know, programs and systems that sort of say this is the optimal sort of plan for a city and this can take into account increasing complexity. Um, and But, you know, I can see that sort of translating to the very small scale in terms of, you know, what it means for what massing is appropriate for single dwellings and a whole bunch of things. I think that, um, uh, so I think that there'll be a step change in how statutory planning is undertaken in the next 20 years. Um, and what I 
also think is that will be a need a bigger need for the narrative of communities and the nuance of communities to be able to be expressed because if we just have a very pragmatic approach to how we build cities we'll take out all the love and creativity wow uh jess remember what we used to joke that uh, computers would one day make planning mm -hmm. decisions mm -hmm. and everyone that used to of, be a very common theme through all of our podcasts actually and, and people laughed people laughed at us jess but now jess you're, <laughs> you're on the bleeding ball. edge <laughs> <laughs> uh jess your crystal well, ball mine was actually going to be very similar to kate's and obviously um this is very topical at the moment with chat gtp GTP, GPT, whatever it's called, um, being all across the news over the last couple of weeks and months. And uh, I think very similar to Kate in that I think we are going to start to see more automation of the way in which we plan. And that's inevitable that that would come, um, whether it be this year, next year, five years' time, 10 years' time, it, it will come in various forms. But I think um, exactly what Kate said, we need to be really careful on how that's actually implemented and making sure that we don't lose um, the nuances of what we as professionals know versus what a machine knows, because there are certainly a lot of them, a lot of nuances and a lot of value that we as planners, as human planners, um, can still add to the process. Wow. Uh, well, Jess, mine's off track, but I think uh, there's going to be nuclear power everywhere in 12 year, 10 to 12 years, Kate. Nuclear power everywhere. I think you didn't you make this prediction um, in our interview with Kath Hagen. I think I, I want to go back and listen to what your prediction was because I think no, it was... no. But but I, I think green green energy traditional. You know uh, what we think is green energy all gone. Nuclear power plants everywhere. We intended... have uh, we have enough uranium stockpiled in Australia that we could make that happen for millennia. <laughs> well, we, <laughs> I think we have twenty five percent of the world's uranium supplies in Australia but we can't use it. Uh, it's illegal for Australia to use yeah. nuclear power. So I think that sort of um, dumbness is going to go, but 10 to 12 years, that's my prediction. Now, Kate, the favourite part of our podcast, um, Podcast Extra, Culture Corner, something you've been watching, listening to, reading, doing that might interest our listeners. Um, I don't know. It's certainly of interest to me. I don't know if it would be interesting to your readers, but are you listeners? But, Sorry, listeners. Um, Sorry, I listeners. Said... I, um, I am reading War Transformed by Major General Mick Ryan. Um, so he is talking about, you know, reflecting on uh, some of the, the technological trends that have been emerging and how that might transform um, how we deal with security. Um, I think one of the some of the things that I've been thinking about is that um, each year or every couple of years, the, the global superpowers produce, you know, um, uh, strategic kind of outlooks of security threats. Um, and uh, Mick Ryan is obviously very much closely um, stitched into that. And so it's interesting to sort of see his take on what some of the global megatrends are and what some of the megatrends are in terms of um, technology and how those two things are coming together. I think that, you know, um, if you want to where, sort of understand where the, the leading edge of tech is, look for either medical or military. Uh, and so this book has been very interesting. Wow. Um, now, Jess, your podcast extra. On a slightly different note. Um, oh, no, surely not, Jess. 
<laughs> I mean, you, you, you follow Ukraine as much as I do, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, my recommendation is farmers markets and getting along to your local farmers market. I've um I've been going to my local market, which is actually in my street, um every Sunday for I don't know probably the last three or four months, and because I suddenly just moved there, and it's just been such great fun and such an important part of the community. And you know, there's a bunch of us that go there with kids, all at the same. Yeah, roughly around the same ages and we all go at the same time and we're there for about three hours and it's just great fun have a coffee buy some local produce support the local um the local growers and it's just a really beautiful environment so i would highly recommend people getting along to their local that, that, that's your community jess that sort of yeah. community yeah yeah how about you pete well um kate uh, for many years i've resisted getting another dog i've always had dogs but i haven't had them for about 10 years used to always had labradors but um a caboodle uh labradoodle sorry has arrived uh called kaizo and um of course he's taken over the house i've forgotten how much work puppies are but um dear kaizo is is i can't read i can't watch anything i'm just playing with a blooming puppy all the time so we have a puppy too. They're addicting, addictive. <laughs> yes. Well, well, Kate, I've written a poem for my um, <laughs> for my puppy, um, and it's very much Japanese influence. Would you Would you like to hear it? Please, I would love to. Mm. It, it's um, it starts sand beneath paws, hot breath on the tan, endless paddocks beyond sight. How see you, dear Kaizo, fresh, warm, and wise. It's lovely. There were cricket. There were crickets there for <laughs> looking for my mute button. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a very Japanese. Uh, oh, influence. I like it. I like so, it. I can see snippets of your life with Kaizo. Yeah, yes, you can. And um, so, Kate, you've been a marvelous guest. I, I think we should have Kate every <laughs> episode. Uh, Jess, I think we just scratched the surface here. Absolutely. Yeah, Kate, well, you've been it was a one- pleasure. You've been a wonderful guest and um, you're always super fun and um, it's been a very inspirational podcast. So thanks so much for coming on and joining Planning Exchange. And as I said before, Kate, as well, I think your pragmatic advice will be of great value to our listeners. So thank you for being so open. No, thank you. Hopefully it doesn't get me into trouble. (laughs) (laughs) We love trouble. We'll wait and see. We we love trouble here, Kate. That's what we do. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.